Welcome to Nakubo in Brief, a podcast series from the National Association of College and University Business Officers. I'm President and CEO Susan Wheeler Johnston, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in today. Our mission with this podcast is to help our listeners better understand the challenges that face the business of higher education. Our hope is that you walk away with a stronger sense of the trends, policies, legislative and regulatory issues that may impact campuses today and in the future. You can find resources for today's episode, as well as a wide variety of educational tools at nakubo.org. Thank you for joining us today. I hope you enjoy the podcast. Hello, and welcome to another edition of Nakubo in Brief. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by Mamie Voigt, the Interim President of the Institute for Higher Education Policy. This is Liz Clark, I'm Vice President for Policy and Research at Nakubo. Mamie, welcome. Thank you, Liz. It's great to be here with you. I am delighted to have you and to be spending some time on this topic today focused on student success. But first, I'd like to share with our listeners some information about the Institute for Higher Education Policy, or IHEP. Can you tell us a little bit about the organization? IHEP, or the Institute for Higher Education Policy, we're a nonprofit, nonpartisan research policy and advocacy organization. We're based in Washington, D.C., and we envision a world where all people, regardless of race, ethnicity, background, or circumstance, have the opportunity to reach their full potential by participating and succeeding in higher education. And so we at IHEP work towards that vision by promoting college access, success, and affordability for all students with a particular focus on closing the gaps and remedying the inequities that impact students of color and students from low-income backgrounds in trying to realize that, that vision of higher education. Because we recognize that higher ed can and should be a pathway towards a better living and a better life for all students. But right now, the research is very clear that that value is being delivered to students uh, in ways that that vary quite a bit based on who a student is and where they come from. And that's that's not right. And so at IHEP, we are working hard to change that, to build a more just and equitable world through higher education, with really, which really is is focused on and and a core component of that is building equitable financial and economic impacts for students, for their families, for communities, and for our economy and our country as a whole. So, Mamie, an organization like Nakubo or other higher education associations in Washington serve professionals from colleges and universities, and many of them are, are focused on access, affordability, and student success. But our work is often responsive to a profession. How is an organization like IHEP different from a higher education association that many of our members might be familiar with? We, because we're not an association, we, we don't have members. Our primary focus is on students and on equity and making sure that the full ecosystem of higher education is working towards the best interest of students. And so that means 
working to influence federal policymakers, state policymakers, institutions of higher education, uh, and the associations serving them to provide the best information possible to shape the types of policies and practices that then impact students and drive the experience that that they will receive because we we recognize that the the value that individual students reap from their higher education is is really substantial students who graduate from college are are less likely to be unemployed they're healthier they're more civically engaged and all of that adds up to really substantial benefits to society as well um, we actually recently did some work with the Georgetown Center on education and the workforce and they they researched what it would look like to have a more equitable higher education system and found that by allowing inequities to persist right now, we're leaving $965 billion on the table in terms of GDP and economic returns. And so at I have those types of numbers about the economic impact of higher education really inspire us and drive us to do this work in the interest of students alongside the moral imperative of making sure that students have equitable opportunities to pursue all of the value that higher ed can provide. I can say from Nakubo, we find the work of IHEP, of the Georgetown Center, and many of the other uh, think tanks or organizations dedicated to research in this space incredibly valuable as, as we've tried to help our own members talk about the value of higher education and uh, the life-changing endeavor of higher education. And, and we couldn't do it without the research of work from organizations like IHEP and others. Maybe before we roll up our sleeves and talk a little bit more about college completion and, and that imperative, tell us a little bit more about yourself. What kind of work have you been doing in this space? I have had a great time in working at IHEP, and I, I previously worked at the Education Trust, so have been working for quite some time now in the higher ed policy space and really enjoy the advocacy work and the the research side of the conversations here and trying to uncover what are some of the best ways that we can be uh, designing our higher education system to serve students well. Uh, and so that is the the type of challenge that, that sort of gets me up in the morning to to do this work uh, at IHEP on behalf of students. And so it's fantastic to have conversations like these to to hear more about the types of work that Nakubo and other associations are doing um, and think about the ways that that IHEP plays into that as well. So COVID-19 has certainly made that challenge even more difficult. How, in your view, has the COVID-19 pandemic shaped college completion around the country? It really has. You know, the pandemic has turned has turned life upside down for for everyone. And higher ed in particular has been turned upside down by the pandemic. I think that's that's something that probably all of your listeners uh, sounds very familiar to them. Administrators, faculty, staff, you know, everyone within the higher ed space has has been facing just an enormous amount of uncertainty and costs that come along with the the pandemic. And that's been incredibly true for students too. You know, not only has their entire learning experience been upended by moving to completely virtual and then some hybrid options, but their whole college experience has changed. And so, you know, we've seen the impacts of this really playing out 
for students who were, you know, in March of 2020, anticipating going to college the next year. And now all of a sudden their, their plans were upended because of family responsibilities or the health uh, risks and challenges or needs to, to go to work and, you know, support family who had lost jobs during the pandemic. So there has been an enormous um, upheaval that students and that uh, institutions have faced during the pandemic. And we're seeing those impacts fall really along racial and socioeconomic lines as well in terms of who is bearing the brunt of the COVID pandemic. And Nakubo, we've been seeing that too, and there's been some fascinating dynamics at play. Uh, It's been really interesting uh, to see the challenge. Not interesting is not the right word. Uh, uh, It's been really difficult to see the impact this COVID-19 pandemic has had, particularly on community colleges who are serving the lower income and more racially diverse students, as well as regional publics and many smaller regional private colleges as well who have seen the challenges that students and their families have been facing in order to keep them enrolled and at those institutions. From our business officer perspective, we're actually seeing uh, something like a, a, a tale of two dynamics going on. We have some colleges that seem to be faring fairly well coming out of the pandemic, but we have are also seeing those institutions that are, are serving greater populations of pill-eligible uh, and diverse students facing many, many more challenges. Uh, so that's that's some of the perspective that, that we hear from our business officers. Yeah, you know, that's absolutely true. And there's been, you know, even before the pandemic, there were 36 million Americans with some college and no degree. So students who have, have had to stop out for, for one reason or another. Um, and, and those stopouts are impacting the community colleges and the under-resourced institutions, uh, minority-serving institutions, the most in in these situations, and the COVID pandemic has similarly had the the biggest impacts on those institutions that are not as well resourced as many other institutions. I think, in some ways, too, the COVID nineteen pandemic is exacerbating some of the trends we were seeing even before twenty twenty. So I think there are a couple of dynamics here at play, but there is uh, perhaps a a great opportunity ahead in the College Completion Fund. I know that IHEP has been advocating on Capitol Hill in support of this fund. First, can you tell us a little bit about this College Completion Fund? How does it go toward these challenges we've just been discussing? And uh, tell us more about the dynamics at play that have opened the door for this conversation in Washington. The College Completion Fund is an incredible opportunity right now. It uh, initiated as a a $62 billion proposed investment in college completion. It was part of the Biden-Harris administration's American Families Plan proposal. And now it's under consideration um, in various ways in the House and the, the Senate. And this would really be a first of its kind investment in college completion, a once in a generation investment in college completion, if it were to move through at this level uh, of $62 billion. You know, we know that higher ed can be transformational for students and for their families and for communities, but that's only if students make it across the completion finish line. And so while higher ed, um, there's often been a large focus on access to college, that completion part of the equation is, is just as critical. And 
it's really inspiring to see this federal focus now on the need to invest in institutions and their completion efforts. Because we know through our work that institutions are doing the hard work of working to get students across that finish line. And a lot of cases, they need additional capacity, additional resources in order to really scale up the best practices in getting students to completion. So they need human capacity, financial capacity, and technological capacity to be able to to scale those efforts. So the College Completion Fund is an incredibly inspirational opportunity here. And we've been working hard to try to encourage Congress to get it across the finish line so that institutions and students have the resources that they need to complete their credentials. Mamie, I know there's a college completion fund in a piece of legislation moving on Capitol Hill, the $3.5 trillion infrastructure bill. Mm -hmm. Uh, By the time listeners hear this podcast, things may have changed, but does what's in that bill now represent uh, the complete goals of the College Completion Fund? Or what are you thinking might be in the final bill? And how will this effort need to continue on Capitol Hill if it's not? Yep. So there are a few different proposals out there on Capitol Hill. The House right now is debating a $9 billion proposal. Um, and we hosted a briefing in mid-September where Senator Heinrich announced a Senate version of the bill that would fund it at $62 billion. And so that was the administration's original proposal. So there is a big difference there between $62 billion and $9 billion. Um, certainly institutions and students can, can benefit from any investment, but we're calling for that full $62 billion investment. That would be truly transformational within our higher education system at a time when we need real transformation. Institutions and students have been hit so hard by the pandemic. And this type of once in a generation opportunity to really invest in the types of capacities that institutions need to serve students is where we should be focusing. So in other words, the amount of the investment should be scaled with the size of the challenge. And this is a substantial challenge. And so it requires some substantial investment in student success. I think that's really important for listeners to understand that this is a big challenge, as as you say, substantial challenge on the order of $62 billion. And that while in the coming weeks and months on Capitol Hill, folks may hear some news about a college completion fund, it does not necessarily represent the end of the fight toward funding what's needed here to serve this cause. So um, we too at Nakubo are paying close attention to what's happening on Capitol Hill and would like to see many of the higher education priorities that the House is debating right now make it through to uh, some type of final agreement on Capitol Hill. Let's turn a little more to college completion on campus, when you're talking to higher education leaders themselves who are interested in closing some of these gaps, what advice do you have for them? We do quite a bit of that at have engaging directly with institutions, just as we think about the, the federal and state policies that influence um, institutional efforts. And I give two pieces of, it, of key advice that can be sort of guiding across all of the efforts for institutions. One is to be student-focused in everything that you do. You know, that's that may be easy to say, but once you get down to really applying a student lens to every decision that's made, you can see how that that really flows through an institution and impacting the student experience. And then the second piece is to know your numbers. 
we are very data driven, very evidence based at IHEP, and we we do a lot of advocacy around um, getting and using better data, particularly data that disaggregates by race, ethnicity, by income status, by gender, to really understand and unpack the inequities that exist within higher education in order to point a way towards solutions to those inequities. And we've seen that there is enormous power for institutions and practitioners and institutional leaders in using data to guide the decisions that they're making. Um, we see that, and I'll give just one example of that. We've been working with um, Shasta College, a rural community college in California. They're part of an initiative that we lead called Degrees When Do. And they have, by digging into their data and trying to understand what barriers exist to student success for students on their campus, they've been able to uncover some very specific things that then change their policies and practices. So for example, they uncovered a computer literacy class that was serving as a barrier for students to complete. It was the only class that many students hadn't yet completed and was keeping them from getting their credential. They found that by digging through their data. And then they were able to make some changes to their curriculum to make sure students were gaining all of the competencies and learnings that are necessary while still completing their credential. So that student focus and that focus on the numbers and the data and the evidence are two really key components to, to driving um, student success on campuses. You are singing our song here at Nakubo. One of our mantras uh, the past couple of years has been trust the evidence and use your data analytics. But what I also hear in your story is a story that we've been trying to help college and university business officers with is understanding their role in sharing the data that they have and seeing the stories that are evidence of some of these challenges and how to solve them. I think historically, much of this work is focused on academic affairs and student affairs, but the story just you just shared actually shows how it was the registrar's office that possessed the information to identify the real challenge to some of those students. And we know here at Nakubo that the Student Financial Services Office or the Bursar's office is often the first office that sees some of the barriers these students face. So... This ties in as well to some of the work that Nakubo has been doing with the Ascendium Grant uh, and looking at how the business office pays, plays a role in student success. We, in the future, are planning to continue this work with a particular look at rural students and transfer students. And it sounds like that ties into uh, some of the work you've done on Degrees When Do to help students, particularly with some college but no degree. Can you talk a little bit about how Degrees When Due is serving the some college, no degree population. I'll dive into Degrees When Due in a moment, but first quickly wanted to follow up on, on a comment you made a moment ago about the, the importance of data-informed decision-making in all offices across campus. We recently came out with a report um, that looked at building a data-informed campus culture. And so that's available on IAP's website, and it really gets into that importance of culture across the campus, in the business office, in the registrar's office. It shouldn't, it isn't something that should just live within institutional research, but it's something that should be spread more widely. And that actually ties into the work that we do through Degrees When Due, which is a completion initiative which involves over 180 institutions in 23 states, and it focuses on re-engaging students who have stopped out of college with some college and no degree. Focuses on awarding degrees to students who have earned them, 
on re-engaging students who are close to completion, and on removing the barriers that led students to stop out in the first place. And so institutions who participate in Degrees When Due, they go through an interactive nine-month learning experience. And it does just what we were talking about, brings people together from various offices on campus to explore the institution's data and understand how to remove barriers and re-engage students. Building on the the example of uh, Shasta College, which I mentioned a moment ago, they, through their data analysis, through Degrees When Due, they identified 575 former students who had stopped out of Shasta, but had 60 credits or more. So they were very close to completion. And what they found was that actually about half of them, 252 of those students, had actually completed all of the academic requirements for their degree. The college was then able to reach out to them and award those earned degrees to nearly every single one of those students. So that makes a real difference in students' lives. There's also a component to this in terms of re-engaging students and bringing them back to campus by sometimes waiving fees that were holding them back from re-enrolling, a library fine or a parking fee that obviously has some, some business ramifications. But what many of these institutions have found is that by waiving those fees and bringing the student back to campus, it's actually a win-win for the institution and the student in helping the student continue their education and helping the, the institution rebuild their enrollments, which is even more critical now as a result of the pandemic. That reminds me of some of the early work conducted at Georgia State University when they discovered that many of the students that weren't re-enrolling for the following term weren't re-enrolling because they had balances due of only $100, $200. These were uh, really creating barriers to completion for students when, for the institution, they were smaller hurdles than the students were perceiving them to be. And Georgia State very quickly instituted programs to help students meet those balances due and continue on and move forward. And all it took for them was a, a look at the data and an actual look at some of the balances due rather than that binary, do they have all their balances due paid yes or no. And it really told a completely different story. So the answers do lie there often right in the data. This is really a great direction for IHEP to be supporting and for our institutions to be really learning and and growing in. It sounds like there's some really exciting work going on with the degrees when due. Is there anything else you'd like to share about that initiative? Yes, it is a really exciting initiative and I think incredibly relevant at this moment in time as uh, institutions work on engaging and re-engaging students um, as we come out of the pandemic. And so we'll have our final report on that work published in early 2022, in addition to a few case studies about some institutions that have really been leading the way in this work. So looking forward to sharing all of those learnings with the world as we finish them up. Well, I know you've been very busy over at IHAP with your advocacy for the College Completion Fund and the Degrees One Do initiative. You've also been working with the Gates Foundation on the post-secondary value. Commission. I understand that one takeaway from the work was that institutions have a responsibility to equitably serve historically disadvantaged students to give them the greatest chance for success by putting them on career pathways to lead to economic mobility and stability. In practical terms, what can colleges and university leaders do to take 
more action in this area? You know, I really appreciate the question because this has been a really uh, important initiative, the Post-Secondary Value Commission, led by a series of, of about 30 experts from higher education and, and the business community. And through this work, we found how incredibly important it is that institutions center equity. And I mean, really make it a priority in all that they do, all of the decisions that they make. The Value Commission's work outlines and describes the the deep disparities in earnings and in wealth that are so deeply entrenched in American society. But we've also found that they're not insurmountable. But higher education institutions, they have a real power and real responsibility here to help address the disparities and the inequities that persist right now within our society across racial and gender and socioeconomic lines. And so policymakers and employers, they certainly have a role to play, but higher education institutions can do quite a bit to put students on career pathways that lead them to that economic mobility and stability. And so the Post-Secondary Value Commission put together an action agenda that took all of the learnings and the insights and the research from the commission itself and turned them into specific steps that policymakers, including college and university leaders, can take to really advance and deliver more equitable value to students. And so there are five key areas in which institutions can focus their work in advancing post-secondary value. They should equalize access to increase post-secondary value, remove affordability barriers, eliminate completion gaps and put students on pathways towards strong post-college outcomes in the workforce, improving data. So getting back to our data conversation to really expose and address the inequitable post-secondary value that exists. And then finally, promoting social justice to prepare students to enter the workforce, to enter their communities in ways that build a more just and equitable system. And so there's a really broad range there in terms of of actions that institutions can take. And the report goes into a, a great amount of detail about it. But ultimately, what we what we found is that by taking these types of actions, higher ed institutions can contribute to not just greater attainment and greater workforce preparedness, but a really stronger and more vibrant economy and a more civically engaged populace, all of which is incredibly important at this time. Amy, there are a lot of challenges there to tackle. One, I want to do a bit of a deeper dive in, if you don't mind, and it's it's related to the college completion conversation that we've been having. Do you think institutions are fully aware of the inequities in their completion gaps by race or by socioeconomic factors? Uh, how much work has been done in that space and how much work yet needs to be done? How much proselytizing that this is a problem yet needs to be done? I think that's a great question. And that was something that was really telling in the work we did through the Value Commission. We all entered it with a mindset of focusing on equity. And we anticipated that we would see gaps as we dug into the the data and the research. But we were all surprised still at the size, the magnitude of those inequities, especially when looking 
at not just completion, but completion and then what happens afterwards. You know, how students are faring in terms of really uh, uh, receiving all of the benefits from higher education. And that's why the data and the disaggregated data are so key here, because they help to unearth and put in front of institutional leaders how substantial these inequities really are. And that can spur the important conversations that need to happen on campuses about how to really remedy those inequities that have existed for far too long. In your mind, what profession across campuses has been carrying the mantle on that task? Is it provosts? Has it been presidents? Has it been academic affairs professionals? Do you think there's any one cabinet level profession that's really been carrying the water here? Or are you seeing profession-wide dedication to meeting some of these challenges? It really needs to be an effort across campus. Students are not interacting only with one office or only with one leader, um, but they're interacting with faculty, with staff, you know, really broadly. And so what every person on campus does makes difference for student success. What we have seen is that the institutions that make the greatest progress, make the quickest progress, are the ones where the leadership really embraces the charge of focusing on student success and focusing on educational equity. And so when a president says, this is important, this is what we'll focus on, or a provost says, we are going to center in on our data in examining barriers to student success, then that's when the greatest change happens because leaders set the tone for an organization. Their mission and their guiding principles that they put out are what determines what every person across campus does. And so having that leadership in place that focuses on these critical aspects is an important part of the equation. I couldn't agree more. And I think you'd find that each one of my colleagues here at Nakubo agrees that it's a cross-role challenge that all of the cabinet level officials at college and universities need to be tackling together. Mamie, this has been a terrific conversation. Is there anything else that you'd like to share with the Nakubo in Brief audience? Well, it's been wonderful to chat with you and and thank you for raising up all of these critical issues around college completion and student success and economic mobility. Um, you know, I'm glad to hear of all of the, the wonderful work that you are doing at Nakubo and look forward to continuing future partnerships together. Absolutely. I know that we rely on your work and we're really excited about how we're bringing business officers into the realm of student success. And I look forward to seeing that space growing immensely. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode. Thank you.